Hello and welcome to the Take 15 podcast. I'm Lauren Foster and this is the series where we bring you short conversations with some of the world's most thoughtful and accomplished people. Today, a special bonus episode recorded during the 73rd CFA Institute Annual Virtual Conference. Morgan Housel, author of the forthcoming book, The Psychology of Money, chatted with author, business consultant, and former professional poker player, Annie Duke, about the science and strategy of decision-making, as well as Annie's new book, How to Decide, out in September. Annie and Morgan agree the world is uncertain and surprising. They say that to make the best decisions, we must demand the broadest possible view of possible paths and then take a stab at probability. Annie and Morgan are rock stars in the world of decision-making and investor psychology, and I'm thrilled to share their conversation on this podcast. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I did. Hi, I'm Morgan Housel. I'm a partner at the Collaborative Fund. I'm very excited to be joining uh, with Annie Duke today. Annie is the author of Thinking in Bets and the upcoming book, How to Decide, which is coming out in September. My own book, The Psychology of Money, is also coming out in September. And Annie, I'm looking forward to discussing what's going on in the world today and how we can think about risk, how we can think about decisions during one of the craziest times that I think either of us have seen in the world. You know, I, as an investor, never thought that I would see a time uh, in, in my life that was crazier than 2008 as an investor or someone looking at the economy. And here we are, uh, by which by any definition, the last couple of months have exceeded 2008 in almost every aspect. And certainly as a student of history, I never thought we would be looking at an economy that by many metrics rivaled the Great Depression, but by some metrics we are. And I guess, Andy, my first question for you today to kick off this conversation is, what is what we've experienced in the last three months and what you've seen in the last three months with COVID-19? How does that change how we should think about risk, how we think about decisions long after this is done? Whenever this is over, whether that's a vaccine or however you want to you know, measure this being done, what are the takeaways that are going to stay with us forever about how we think about risk, how we think about uncertainty in life in general? Yeah, so... That's it. So first of all, I'm so happy to be here with you. And I'm so happy that we're going to be able to launch our books together in September. I'm, I'm really looking forward. Like I want to try to get some stuff done together then because I think they're very complimentary. I've had the chance to read an advanced copy of Morgan's book and it's just, it's fabulous. If anybody's familiar with Morgan's writing, it's like that on steroids. It's so great. Um, so, so I think actually what, what, the thing that I've been thinking about is that we think, I think right now we think that the way that we think about risk and the way that that we think about how we're supposed to make decisions is going to change because of the environment that we're in now. But I think actually it's going to, it's not going to change enough in, in the sense that people are talking about this environment right now because they're seeing it as incredibly unusual, right? Th this is a time when volatility is really, really high, obviously. Um, we know that there's lots and lots of information that we don't know. We're much more keenly aware that there are unknown unknowns. You know, we think about the things we know, the things we know we don't know, and then the things we don't know we don't know. And there's kind of those three categories. And right now, all of those things are amplified. And we when we're thinking about the sort of how much uncertainty is there in our decisions, the two influences are luck, where there's a lot of luck going on right now, right? Like we can really see it in our face. And then the imperfect information, which we can also see as information changes on a daily basis. And we really recognize that we don't know a lot about the virus and that, 
is going to certainly be very hard to predict um, to any real, you know, sort of within a narrow band, what's going to, how long is the virus going to stay? What exactly is going to be the ultimate effect on the economy? When you remove the stress of the virus on the economy, what is the recovery going to look like? Who knows? But then what I hear people say is, okay, so if I figure out how to make decisions in this environment, then how does that really help me when things go back to being stable? And I think that that's a really interesting statement because the fact is that all the decisions that we make actually look much more like the environment that we're in now than the environment that we thought we were in. So yes. it's true that, you know, over the last decade or so that uh, things have se felt very stable. But that's really only in retrospect if you see that upward climb, because this one thing that coronavirus should teach us, and certainly the one thing the meltdown in 2008 should teach us, is that uh, it's really hard to predict what's going to happen next. It's easy to look back and say, oh, that was a really stable decision-making environment, but it's not stable at the moment you make the decision. It's only stable in retrospect. And what I fear is that people are... Sorry, go ahead. It's just your perception of how stable the world was. It, right, but, but exactly. The, of the world didn't wasn't different. It was just how we thought about it. Exactly. And we know this because people, you know, if it were true that somehow the world was more predictable at those times, then people would have been better predicting at predicting the 2008 crisis. Right. If we knew that, then people would be better at predicting exactly what would be happening in the stock market right now, which I think everybody, the stock market's a great example of um, how hard it is to predict these things because um, it's confusing to people why the unemployment numbers come out and the stock market seems to go up, right? Or I think yesterday I saw something where someone mentioned, um, uh, you know, California just extended its stay at home order, which of course means extending its work from home order and Slack went down. Right. So it's like, whoa, what? I don't quite get what the correlation is there. So um, so the way that I like to think about it is like the, in the original. So we think about the movie version of The Wizard of Oz. And in the movie version, Dorothy and the Scarecrow and Lion and Tin Man all come up on the Emerald City. And it's this gleaming city, you know, emerald colored, beautiful green city. But in the original book by Baum. Um, they actually, before they could enter the walls of the city, they had to put on green glasses and the green glasses got locked in place so that when they went in, these buildings that actually were just beige um, would look green because you had these green glasses on that you weren't allowed to take off. So I kind of think about it as like coronavirus made us all take our glasses off yeah. and say, oh, no, there's a lot of luck in life. And there's a lot of imperfect information and a whole bunch of stuff I don't know and a whole bunch of stuff I don't even know I don't know. And this is really hard and very uncertain. But that when this goes away and we have a little period of like, okay, things have sort of feel like they're calmer, everybody's going to put their glasses back on. Yes, yes. There's this great quote that I love from Daniel Kahneman who he says, the correct lesson to take away when you have been surprised by something is that the world is surprising. It's not that you've okay. learned your lesson and you know that's the lesson. The takeaway is the world is uncertain. The world is surprising. But there's also this irony. I feel that whenever the world, whenever we're hit by something like COVID-19 or the 2008 financial crisis, that is when people's desire to forecast what is going to happen next surges because the stakes are okay. high. People are dying right now. 
So people want to know exactly what's going to happen next so they can protect themselves. So it's all this is weird thing of like as soon as the glasses come off and we realize how risky the world is and how hard it is to predict, that is when we our 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 insistence that we should be able to predict increases. So it's almost like we have the opposite takeaway. It's like whenever we realize that the world is surprising, we we want to put on the blinders and say, no, it's not surprising. I know what's going to happen next. And it's it, like I, you, when you mentioned the stock market, there is this irony that the crash in March, no one foresaw coming. Very few people foresaw coming. And then the surge in April, almost no one saw coming. Like at what point are we going to say we don't know what's going to happen next? But no one wants to say that because it's so uncomfortable when the stakes are high, shrugging your shoulders and saying, I don't know what's going to happen next feels reckless. So we, we reach for these conclusions about what we think is going to happen. Yeah. And, and I think that's such a good point. And, and I think that it's, it's, the problem is that it's actually the opposite of re- reckless, because if you uh, overly index to one version of the future that you decide that you could predict or be certain about in this kind of environment, you're actually going to do really poorly because the chances that the world goes a different way are just high. Yes. Whereas if you say there's lots of different ways that the world could turn out, which is always true. Like if I choose a w- route to work, there's lots of ways that that choice could go, right? I could get there on time. Um, there could be an accident on the road. There could be a road closure that I didn't foresee. There could be a sudden downpour that slows me down. I could blow a tire. Like, I mean, we can go on like ad infinitum, right? But we don't really think about it that way. We 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 think about the certainty. And the best way that you can be a decision maker in this type of environment is not to demand certainty, but to ma- to demand the broadest view of what the possible paths are. And if you can get a really good view of what the possible paths are and then take a stab as best as you can at how probable you think each of those paths is, understanding that you're going to have to hold those forecasts pretty loosely because there's new information coming in all the time. So how probable you thought a particular path was yesterday may really get updated today when you learn something new. Like think about the day before we knew there were asymptomatic transmissions to the day after. Right now you have to really update your model and that's okay. That then you can start making decisions to plan for all of those scenarios and figure out what are the decisions that kind of work across all the scenarios. Even if I'm making a bet, if I think that one is more probable, what are the ways that I can hedge against the, the world going a different way so that I can actually blunt the, the risks that I'm taking on, you know, so on and so forth. And then and then what happens, I think, to your point is that because people in this environment are demanding certainty, that they take decision tools that have uncertainty built into them and they just like mash a model of certainty onto something that's inherently un- uncertain. And that's true when you look at the epidemiological models, right? So there's a first of all, there's a lot of different models and they have they have different um forecasts for for example, you know, there's we've been talking about how many fatalities do we expect in America by August? And uh, there was a latch on to this one model, the IMHE model. And then not only that, there was a latch on to the lower bound of that particular model. Right. And instead of communicating to the public, like the lower bound is 60,000, but the upper bound is in the 100,000-ish range. Um, and it's a pretty wide range and we don't really know. It was, it's going to be 60,000 people dead by August 4th. And that's what you kept hearing. There'll be 60,000 people dead by August 4th. 
as if they were telling you something certain, ignoring that there was uncertainty inherent in that particular model. But then you could go look at Columbia's model. And Columbia had three different models that uh, where you were toggling social distancing and they all had ranges within them. But so the three models had were uh, had a spread and then each of those each of the three models has a spread. And then you can look at the, you know, the Royal College and the Imperial College in England and you can look at Johns Hopkins and so on and so forth. And you can see that all these models are kind of giving you different views of the future. And instead of saying which one is the answer that we might be better off saying, well, let's look across all of them and see how we could sort of plan the best for for any of these possibilities occurring. I mean, to tie this back to finance, and because I, I agree with all of that, it seems like what, what I've always thought about investing in my own personal finances is that doing well over a long period of time is not necessarily about finding the right answer, making the best decision. It's about being right. able to survive amid the broadest range of outcomes. Uh, and that's that just being just being having the widest range of outcomes being acceptable to you is 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 a huge part of just surviving as an investor over time, which is when compounding works the greatest. Uh, and, right. and, and well, I, yeah. Great analogy. Like I, I think about this, like I assume like I mean, outside of just like having a balance of equities, bond, bonds and cash. But even even in your equity portfolio, you don't demand that they tell you what stock to buy. Right. It'd be like, you have to tell me which I only want to know one just and I'm going to put all my money in that. And everybody kind of feels that that's absurd and that you should you should you should be placing your money across a wide basket of different equities. Hopefully there's some lack of correlation among them. Right. Like, you know, we sort of think about that. I mean, that's the whole point of portfolio theory. But then when it comes to something like this, we, we don't think about the idea of having uh, betting on a portfolio of, of scenarios for how the world might turn out and that we could look at all these models and kind of get a sense of what that that the, those scenarios might look like so we can set up the set best portfolio of decision instead of just saying it's going to be 60,000 people dead by August 4th and therefore every decision I make is going to be based on that. I'm just going to choose one path. It's the opposite of of what you're trying to coach retail investors to be doing. Right, right. You know, something that's inherent in all of that is this idea of just unknowns and uncertainty. And certainly with COVID-19, there's so much information that we don't know. We don't even know how many people have been affected uh, or have, no. have, have been infected right now. And, but, and so we're, we're doing the best we can with the data that we have, but we know with certainty that the data is incomplete. And that to me is also right. a good analogy for how investing works, even in the best of times. There's all these variables that are just fundamentally unknowable. The biggest of which in in equity markets is this, the change in valuations over time, which is by and large changing changes in investors' moods from optimism to pessimism. How do we take a data-driven approach to making decisions when we know with 100% certainty that some of the most important variables we do not know? Yeah, so I, I think it's about that's such a good question. Um, The, I, I think the issue about data is so so data data is a double edged sword as everything is, and uh, the way that I think about data is it's a way for us to think about uh, what do we know, and we can improve. If you think about it, the base of any decision, right? If we're thinking about really what we're trying to do is create better forecasts, right? Um, and forecasting is what you do in any any system that's uncertain. You're just you know it's like a weather forecast, right? We're not certain it's going to rain, but there's a thirty percent chance in the coverage area, right? So um, 
but there's lots and lots of stuff you don't know. So data is a tool for helping the the foundation of every forecast that you make, which is what is what is the knowledge that you have and what are the beliefs that you have. And the more that we can improve that, the better off we are. But we're always going to be doing that, acknowledging that our information is never going to be perfect. So yeah. if we think about the foundation yeah. of all of our decisions, there's kind of two problems we have. One is that there's cracks in the foundation, meaning some of the things that we believe are inaccurate. And data can obviously help correct that. Um, but then also our foundation is flimsy. We just don't know a lot. And data can also help correct that. So one of the things that's really great with data is that if we're trying to make better forecasts and we really recognize that we're trying to do the scenario planning, it causes us to be pretty hungry to go out and find information out. And hopefully we can go find the data to do that. Yeah. That's the upside of data. The downside of data is twofold. Uh, the first downside of data is that it gives you the illusion that you have the truth. So data are not truth. Data are uh, facts that we have out in the world that have been collected for a particular purpose. And then we model the data. And we know that I could hand you a data set and hand somebody else a data set. And you, what you think the data set is telling you could be very different than what somebody else thinks the data set is telling you. That's kind of number one. And number two, it's like, uh, you can think about how did you collect the data? So we just had this problem with this, the study with uh, Santa uh, Clara, right? Where um, there was data and everybody was saying, oh, this data is telling us that we need to multiply the number of confirmed cases by 80. But the yeah. problem was there was a problem with the way the data was collected, but it gave people some sort of illusion that this was that this was somehow the truth as opposed to the data was collected in a particular way. You need to examine how that data was collected. And then there were pro problems with the way that the data was modeled. So we need to recognize that even when something is data driven, that you still need to hold all of this stuff really loosely because right. it's just a human being modeling that data. And we need to think about how it's how it's collected. And then the second downside um, is this, that it can cause analysis paralysis. Because we can think, if I just went and got more data that I'd have the answer. And then all of a sudden you you find it impossible to decide. So those are kind of the two things is one, it gives you the illusion that you can get to a perfect choice. And then because I think partly because of that illusion, it can really drastically slow your decision-making down as you just keep saying, but if I could just find out something more, then I wouldn't have to make this decision when I'm 60%. I could make this decision when I'm 90%. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we see that all the time in investing and in and, and many areas of life where more data increases your confidence, but not necessarily your ability. And a lot of that is just getting into confirmation bias of looking for data that supports what you already believed. And then you have more confidence in what you believed, even if it's not necessarily true. And that's there's a great quote from uh, from Talib that I love where he says, uh, big data brings cherry picking to the industrial level. So that's like one of the downsides of the era that we live in when there is so much data around us is that no, whatever you want to prove, you can prove it with data, not just dogma. You can prove it with data. And that gets really dangerous. Right. Um, and, and to me, maybe tying back to what we spoke about earlier, maybe one solution to this is just more humility in what we're dealing with. And again, being able to do okay in the widest range of outcomes when we accept that even when we have data, there's a tremendous amount out there that we don't know and we'll never know. Well, I, I think that your point was, I, I think that I'll go back to a point that you made earlier, which I think was very um, insightful, which is combining those two things, 
the more humility you have, the more that you go into your portfolio construction saying, I don't really know how the world is going to go. I could go get a bunch of data and I could tilt a little bit one way or the other, but I have to really watch myself and I need to be humble about what, how, how I'm looking at this data and what I'm pulling from it so that even if I have a lean, you know, and you could make it a simple lean, like bullish bearish, right? Even if I have a lean, I need to kind of downgrade that lean because I recognize that I may be just sort of working into my worldview. And so what I want to do is just say, sort of go, I, I don't know. So let me just cover my bases. I'm, I'm going to kind of cover as much as I possibly can. And the best thing for me to do would be to go look at how things have been historically, recognize that there may be seismic changes in, in the market. But, you know, um, mostly, it, you know, the people who do well through any financial crisis tend to be the people who don't do too much yep. and just kind of say, okay, I'm just sort of going to cover my bases and I'm not going to try to predict perfectly. And um, that takes a lot of humility and it takes a lot of understanding that you don't know. And it takes uh, an ability to resist when something has gone well, that that doesn't mean that your model of the world is correct also. So I think about that in terms of like, you can see with like growth and value investors, right? Where it go, it, it, even if it's correct in a particular environment, it might not be correct going forward. So you have to hold those models very loosely. It may not have even been the right choice at the time that it was working well, because you could be right for not necessarily the right reasons, quote unquote, right? Like the, it could just happen that um, the right model of the world happened to overlap enough with the model that you would come up with. There's all sorts of reasons that that could be true, which you want to hold loosely. And I'm thinking about a story from your own book of that problem where someone, um, you know, has success with a particular model of the world and then it kind of goes south which was in another crisis in the 1920s. So I would love for you to convey that because I think that that's related to what we're talking about. Like how humble are you about your strategies? Yeah, I think uh, one way that I've framed this is that there's a big difference between getting rich and staying rich. Those are two skills that you need to have at the same time uh, to do well over time, but they are often opposite skills in terms of getting rich, or you can use a different phrase than rich. Uh, you know, Being successful yeah. often requires taking a risk you know, swinging for the fences, taking a shot in the dark, while staying rich, staying successful requires humility in what you don't know and paranoia about about future uh, future unknowns, future events. And it's the pairing of those two, kind of the barbell strategy of thinking about risk, that where, where you find people who do very well over time. There are so many people who are good at getting rich and terrible at staying rich. And I think if you want to do well over time, you have to have both. Inherent in that, Annie. Um, is is this topic that I think about a lot, and I know you and I have spoken about this in the past as well, is that if you make a good decision because it's based on probabilistic odds, there is a chance, of course, always by definition, that you can make a good decision and it does not go in the way that you wanted to. That's that's by nature. If you do something that has a 90% chance of being right, um, you know, it's probably a good bet to take depending on the outcome of it. But that, that means there's a 10% chance that you're not going to be right. There's a story that I love from a hedge fund manager named Monish Pabrai, who uh, many years ago, this is more than a decade ago, he made an investment in a company called Delta Financial, and the company went bankrupt. And he was interviewed after, uh, the, after it went bankrupt, and the interviewer basically said, well, what happened? And he said, well, you know, I, you know, there was risk, and obviously the risk didn't turn out, but it was a good bet. And the interviewer said, well, wait, what do you mean? You, this company went bankrupt. You're saying it was a good bet? 
And Mona said, yes, if I could find another one of these investments just like that, I would, I would invest in it again. And the interviewer's like, what, you lost all your money. And he says, yes, but it was a good bet. Even though it worked against me, it was still a good bet. Yeah. My question for you is that we know theoretically that's true. But in the real world, just like this interviewer showed, people don't think probabilistically. They think black and white, binary. You were either right or you were wrong. So how do, for the people listening who are by and large money managers, asset managers, how do you convey to the world that you can make decisions that were good, even if they did not work out for you, when it's so easy to just to think in binary terms? So let me just add in there a problem that I obsess about, which is that you can make decisions that are bad that turn out really well. Yes, of course. So, yeah. so it's just as like it was Delta Financial, right? That it's just it could just as well happen that he invested in Delta Financial and it became like hugely successful and it was a terrible decision at the time. There's all sorts of reasons it could be a terrible decision. Like for example, like the price he was paying for the investment. So like the fundamentals of the company might be great, but you might be just paying too big a premium for it, which would make it a poor bet, but then the company explodes and whatever. Like there, so the reverse is true as well. And in either case, you're, you're really in danger of learning the wrong lessons. In one case, like nobody ever looks at their successes to say, well, oh, what did I do wrong? Um, they just assume that it was a great decision and they go to repeat it. And this is a binary way that we think, right? And then on the downside, they're like, what a big mistake that you invested in that company, even though it might've been a perfectly good um, decision. So uh, it's a great question about how to protect yourself against it. And the, the first thing that I would say is that it's, it's just, it's very hard to do this after the fact. Yeah. because. The way that our brains work, you know, Malbison has talked about this. Michael Malbison has talked about there's like a um, uh, there's a storyteller in our head. And after we get an outcome that gets activated and it, it tries to figure out what the causes are so it can create this sort of cohesive narrative. And this is only after you get an outcome. So it's something that just naturally happens cognitively for us is that you engage this kind of narrative function in our head once you have an outcome and you're like, why? Why did that happen? And then we're trying to make sense of the world in this way. Um, and so no matter how much you know about resulting, which is what this problem is, we all still do it, right? When I hit a shot in tennis that does, you know, that's a, I'm like, oh, why did I hit that shot? But it might have been, and I have to train myself to say, no, that was actually the right shot. I just it was poorly executed or something like that. It's very hard to get your your head out of this idea when you when you invest in a particular stock and it goes down. It's just really hard not to feel you know to feel like that wasn't a bad um, decision to invest in the stock in the first place. Like why did you do that? Of course, that's why we have portfolios in the first place. Because exactly. so yes. my suggestion to people is to do pre work. Is that when you're making decisions, as much as possible, to try to make your forecast explicit. Mm -hmm. Try to make your scenario planning explicit. Try to write down what the reasons are, what the beliefs that you have are, and what the facts on you know in, of the world are that make you be believe that this is this is a good bet. And actually, just record it. Track your knowledge, because once you do that, you get very focused on process, and you can start to disconnect yourself from the actual outcome. It's much easier to go back and say, given what I knew at the time, this was a totally reasonable choice to make. I mean, we could think about the simple thing of like, um, you know, an equity, you know, one of the one of the stocks that you own go down. 
Well, if you looked back and you said, okay, at the point of portfolio construction, I wrote down why I was doing this. And you say, uh, you know, well, let's take a simple thing, right? Like um, the stock market is soaring and you're really sad about your 60-40 equity to bonds split, right? Mm -hmm. So you're super sad. Like, why do I have this? You can go back and you can look and say, this is what my risk tolerance is. I'm thinking about all the different scenarios for the world, how likely it is that there could be a downturn in the market, how close I am to retirement, you know, and you're writing, literally writing all of that stuff down with your for, with your scenarios of how likely is the market to go up? How likely is the market to go down? You're looking at historical data and you get that all written down. Now, when you're sitting in a situation where the stock market is soared and you're kind of sad because you had a more conservative portfolio construction, you can just go back and look at that and see that there were lots and lots of reasons for that. And this is in the same way as not getting overly happy when you have that type of portfolio construction and the market ha and the market crashes, because we're in danger of both. We're in danger of thinking it was the worst decision ever. And why did I ever do that when the market soars? But when the market crashes, I was a genius and I predicted it perfectly. Well, no, you didn't predict it perfectly because if you did, then your equities would have been zero or at least the equities that you held would have only been equities that do well under these circumstances, which I know is not true. So the whole point was back to your about humility. You're not doing it perfectly. You're doing it in a way to protect yourself against against the uncertainty. And that's really what you're trying to do. You're not trying to be a perfect predictor of whether what's going to go up or what's going to go down. You're just saying it might go up and it might go down. And how do I deal with that? That's perfect. Annie, this has been as enjoyable as I knew it would be, but I think we have exceeded our allotted time. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to chat about risk in the world today. Um, please, please check out Annie's book, How to Decide, out in September. My own book, The Psychology of Money, out in September as well. Annie Duke, thank you very much. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting, or legal advice, please consult a professional. I'm Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.